Well, good morning, guys. Welcome. Glad you're here. Looks like everybody uh, survived Christmas. Um, I was glad to see it come. I was even gladder to see it go. Um, we had, um, let's see, 12 adults, 11 grandchildren under the age of eight, and four dogs, none of which were mine in my home. And talk about overstimulated. I mean, I, I spent more time in the backyard than I did in the house because it was just, it was crazy. But love to see him come, but I love to wave the last one goodbye, you know. Merry Christmas. See you next year. Uh, glad to be back. Uh, I know we got some new guys. If you're first timer, raise your hand. Great. Glad you're here. Uh, yeah. I'm going to uh, kind of give you some housekeeping uh, information just to help you understand how this thing works. Uh, on your table is a handout. That handout will be there every week, and it's basically the teaching notes. Um, everything that I'm going to cover in this uh, lecture is going to be on those notes, so you don't have to take copious notes. Um, there's also homework. The last two pages are homework for next week, and so uh, I encourage you to do it. It doesn't take that long, uh, but it'll help you kind of get ready for the next uh, week's lesson. Um, there's a flash drive. You may not have seen it when you came in, but a little flash drive was on the table. I encourage you to get one of those. This is um, a devotionary, which is basically a daily devotional I wrote on the book of Hebrews back earlier in the year, and uh, last year. And it's going to go into greater detail, and it's part of your homework, so it'll tell you read pages 21 through 25, and it'll kind of take you through uh, chapter by chapter the book of Hebrews. So that's out there for you. Uh, we're not printing them out this year. Um, I got into a whole lot of trouble because I went way over budget on my printing budget. So uh, you're going to have to print it out yourself. But that flash drive has everything you need. So those are all the elements to what we're going to be doing as we go through the book of Hebrews. Um, 12 weeks. This is week one. It's going to be introduction. Uh, I'm excited. I've been studying this thing for literally months, and I am like full to the brim, and I got to get some of this stuff out. So I'm ready to start sharing with you what God's been teaching me. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into it. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we're grateful for a new year. Uh, Lord, I'm sure some of us in the room are maybe a little apprehensive about this new year. Is it going to be worse? Is it going to be better? Uh, is there going to be more strange things happening? And probably yes, uh, because we live in a world where Strange things happen all the time. And I pray as we study this book that it would prepare us to handle whatever may come our way because we serve a risen Lord who sits at the right hand of you. And he rules and he reigns, he speaks and he intercedes on our behalf and he is alive and he's well and that Father, he is active. And may we see that like we've never seen it before as we study this incredible book. We give you this time together and we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so why are we studying the book of Hebrews? Well, if you were uh, here last semester, we did the book of Exodus. Uh, the two semesters before that, we did the book of Genesis. So we worked our way through the first two books of the Bible. And I wanted to go back into the New Testament. And I thought, what book should I cover? And I thought, well, Hebrews would be a perfect choice because it's really a New Testament commentary on the first five books of the Bible, especially Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. It, it explains a lot of what's going on in those books that we tend to read and our eyes glaze over. You know, we read those books and we're like, what in the world is all this stuff about sacrifices and blood and atonement and lambs? And 
Well, this book is going to help explain why all that's there. And the easy answer is Jesus. Uh, people come up to me all the time and say, I have a question for you. And I always say, Jesus, because he's the answer to everything. And that usually doesn't answer their question, but it's, it's accurate. Um, that's what this book is all about. But why are we studying a book written to Hebrews? It's literally the letter to the Hebrews. I'm not a Hebrew. I'm going to guess that most every guy in this room is not a Hebrew. So why are we reading a book written to Hebrews? Why would anybody living in the 21st century who's a Gentile, which is what we are, we're non-Jews, why would we want to read this book? Well, the easy answer is this one. And it's the same answer to why we studied the book of Exodus. You know, why study these ancient books in the Old Testament when we're living in the 21st century? Well, here's the scripture's answer. This is Paul's answer. All scripture, which is in his day and age, talking predominantly about the Hebrew scriptures, is inspired by God, is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. That's why we study any book of the Bible. Um, over the last 20 years of, of working with men in this church, I'm, I'm slowly trying to work my way through every book of the Bible. I want you guys to ex be exposed to every book of the Bible, which means at some point I'm going to have to teach Leviticus. Um, and maybe one guy will show up, but that's okay. Uh, it's a great book. I'll, I'll teach it anyway. Every book in the Bible, including the book of Hebrews, is inspired by God and is meant to teach you and I about God because it's the revelation of God, but it also teaches us about us. And one of the dangerous things about studying the word of God is it shows you aspects of you you don't want to see. It's going to reveal things about your heart that maybe you're blind to or you've turned a blind eye to. You don't want to think about it. You want to hear about it. But this book, like all the other books, is meant to teach us, and it's inspired by God. It opens up with the fact that God spoke, and he's still speaking. The question is, do we hear him, and are we listening? You know, you can come to church every Sunday and you can come to every Bible study imaginable, but you cannot necessarily hear what God is trying to say to you. So my hope for you, my prayer for you, my prayer for me is that I will continue to hear what God is saying and hear it and obey it and listen to it and allow it to change me because it's inspired by God. The message is timeless. That's what's cool about the Bible is that we can read these books, both Old Testament and New Testament, and even though they're written thousands of years ago, they're timeless in their message because they come from God and he's timeless. He lives outside of time. He doesn't worry about centuries, what century you live in. He doesn't worry about what country you live in. He worries about the fact that his truth is always timeless and it's always relevant. You know, as I've studied this book uh, over the last months, I've had to realize things about myself that I think I knew, um, but... It's like God shone his flashlight into an area that I had forgotten about, an area that I didn't want to see. And he showed it to me so that I might allow his Holy Spirit to change that in me. Everything about these things are about Christ. Everything we're going to study is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the risen Lord, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He's alive, he's well, and he's still ruling in my life and in your life. You know, we just finished Christmas, right? Christmas is about the baby in a manger. 
Later on in a few months, we're going to do Easter. Easter is Christ on the cross and then risen and ascended on high. We think of Jesus in basically those two terms, baby in a manger, incarnation, on a cross, and resurrection. And that's great. Those are true. Without both of those, we don't have a Messiah. We don't have hope. We don't have a Savior. But we don't tend to think about what, where is he now? What's he doing now? You know, he's not a baby. He's not on the cross. He's not in the tomb. He's risen. But what's he doing? Is he on an extended vacation until the book of Revelation? What, what's, what's he about? That's what this book is going to reveal to you and I. And I hope what it'll do for you, what it's done for me, which is open my eyes to the reality that Jesus Christ is alive and well and active and everything he taught is still applicable today. And there are things that he's doing that I don't think about. And I need to think about. I need to dwell on, I need to rest in them, I need to make them a part of my life every day of my life. And so the content of this book is gonna be really applicable to the here and now. Even though it was written to Hebrews living a long time ago, the content applies to you and I as 21st century Gentile Christians living in the United States of America. It's hard to believe, but it's true. And you're gonna see things that maybe you've never seen before. I always think about this that Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he's really writing about things happening in the past, their past, the ancient past, things recorded in the Old Testament. He says, these things happened to them, the Israelites, as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. Paul's writing, basically, people living in Corinth who are Gentile Christians who've come to faith to Christ, in Christ. They're not Hebrews, but he's saying everything that happened to those Hebrews living way back during Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all that stuff happens so that you might learn from what they experienced, so that you might grow accordingly. Well, the same thing applies to the book of Hebrews. Even though I didn't live back then, I'm not a Hebrew. I'm not part of the family of Abraham by blood. I can learn from what they went through. That's why these passages are here. And that's why we're gonna take the time to go through them. But it's interesting that he says, you've got to stand strong. We live in difficult days. We live in really bizarre times. We live in, in a day when, man, you don't know what to expect in the morning when you look at the news, right? You think yesterday was bad. It just seems like you wake up the next morning and it's worse. There's wars going on. There's all kinds of ideologies that are fighting for primacy in our culture. And we live in bizarre days and we're being called to stand strong in the midst of it. And that's really gonna be the theme of this whole thing. What is he trying to tell these people, he, the author, and the people to whom he's writing, who happen to be Jews, Jewish Christians, what's he trying to tell them? We find that in verse three of chapter two. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation? Now that's the title of this whole series, such a great salvation. And we'll unpack that in a minute. It was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak. <clears throat> he talks about how are we gonna escape? Escape what? Well, escape the judgment of God, the coming judgment, how are we going to escape that if we ignore this incredible salvation? Now, 
these verses are jam-packed and it's going to take 12 weeks to unpack them so that we understand them. And, and yet we need to understand that we've got to listen to what's being said so that we might stand strong, so that we might not drift away, as we'll see in just a second, from this great salvation. I'm going to assume, and this is always a dangerous assumption to make in a room with this many guys in it, but I'm going to assume that we're all believers, that we've all placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that we've all experienced salvation, that we know what it means to come to faith in him and have our sins forgiven and our future assured because of his death on the cross. I'm going to assume that. But how would you rate your salvation? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm not, not, not going to ask you to take a survey. But I, I do want you to think about this. How would you rate your salvation? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you had to rate your salvation on a scale of one to 10, where would you score it with 10 being incredible and one being dead in the water? Where, where are you in your salvation? Are you happy? Are you happy with the results that some point in life, you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I was seven when I placed my faith in Christ. I walked down the aisle in my dad's church and I gave my life to Christ. I'm now 68, so it's been a long time. Am I happy with my decision? And I would say yes, but am I satisfied with where I am in that process? Are you a satisfied customer? Are you glad you did what you did? And I'm going to guess that all of you would say, well, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. But I also think that some of us in the room feel like maybe we've been shorthanded a little bit. Maybe we've been dealt an uneven deck. We, we, we haven't gotten everything we wanted, that all of the promises have not yet been fulfilled, that we don't feel like this salvation thing is what we signed up for. See, what we're going to find out in this book is that he's writing to people who are beginning to question the validity, the value of their salvation. It's not quite what I expected. Things aren't going as well as I thought they would go. And I guarantee there's somebody, and it isn't just me in this room, who sometimes questions that very same thing. So what are the promises that Jesus Christ gave to you and I? Now, these are in your notes, but just, I just want you to think about, these are what he said you would get when he came and you placed your faith in him. I have come that they may have life and have it in all its fullness, abundant life, overflowing abundant life. Would you say, and again, don't raise your hands, don't say yes, don't say no. Would you say that you, you have abundant life? Now, what I experienced on Christmas with all those people in my home was abundant. But I wouldn't call it joyful necessarily. I mean, I was about to rip my hair out. There were grandkids who are lucky to be alive. Um, but that's not what he's talking about. So have you experienced abundant life? in Life in all its fullness. Not, he's not talking about heaven, guys. He's talking about right here, right now. So how spiritually fulfilling is your life? Do you feel fulfilled? Secondly, he says, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. This one, this one hits me pretty hard. Peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. So here's the question. How's your peace of mind this past year? Would you say that this last year you were more peaceful or panicked? 
worried, anxious, or just confident in God. And I have to admit that mine, I was all over the map. I'm up and down. It really depends on how I start my day. If I start my day in the Word and then go about my day, I'm okay. If I start my day in the Word and then look at the news, then my day goes into panic mode. It's like everything I just heard about God goes out the window because, oh my gosh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Where's God? What's he doing? How, why has he left us? Why, why has he forsaken us? So the question is, do you have peace of mind? What did he say? I, I've come to give you a gift. Peace of mind, peace of heart. How's that going? How about this one? These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You know, I find it fascinating that since 20 years ago when I left advertising to become a pastor, my two favorite holidays of the year have become my least favorite holidays of the year. Christmas and Easter. Well, Ken, why would you say that? You're a pastor. Because they're like work sessions. We, we spend weeks and months preparing for them. Then they come and it's like service after service after service. And, and it's not, I don't enjoy those occasions like I used to because I feel like they've become work. Now that's not an indictment on the church. That's an indictment probably on me that I've taken that attitude that I'm really ready to see them go rather than rejoice in them. But I have to question, how much joy have I had this last year? Is my life marked by joy? Is your life marked by joy? When you look on 2023, were you joyful more than unhappy, grumpy, complaining, bitter, See, Jesus died and rose again so that you might have joy. Then he goes on and says, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. So how's your salvation been helpful to you? You placed your faith in Christ. As a result of that, the Holy Spirit came, the helper, the advocate, the comforter. He's got a lot of different titles in the scriptures. He came to dwell in you. Has he been helpful? Now, if you're like me, he is helpful, but you gotta listen to him, right? He's there, he speaks, he guides, he directs, but I can quench him and I can grieve him by not listening to him. It's like when your wife speaks to you. You ever had your wife speak to you? My wife speaks to me all the time. The problem is I, I don't always listen. I act like I'm listening. I, I nod my head, yeah, 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 yeah but I don't really hear her. And she knows I don't hear her. And it frustrates her. Now, I'm not saying my wife is the Holy Spirit, but I really do believe that God places these women in our lives and they function much like the Holy Spirit. Because nine times out of 10, my wife is right. Over the years, she has said, you know, I don't know that I would do that. And I'm like, honey, what do you know? What, what, do you, what do you know about advertising? What do you know about this? What do you know about, and she's like, I, I'm just telling you, I, I have this check in my spirit. And dad, gentlemen, she's always right. Because I'll go ahead and do what I think is right. And then I'll learn that I should have listened to my wife. See, this idea of the Holy Spirit's there to be helpful. But has he been helpful? I'm, I'm just going to guess that the problem is not with him. It's probably with you. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In other words, he said, when I go, you're going to get this power. But do you sense God's power in your life? Or do you feel like you're operating in your own strength? Do you feel like 
man, he's just not there. He's just not helping me. I pray and he doesn't answer. Do, do you feel the power of God in your life? Now, I don't, I don't do this to make you start out the new year on a downer, guys. My point is that you're gonna find a lot in common with these Hebrews that this letter is written to, that you've got doubts, you've got fears, you feel like the promises haven't come through, that, you, that man, this salvation thing is great. I know I'm going to heaven, but right now it's not going like I would like it to go. Well, he goes on and says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you all the things that are to come. So would you say that in 2023, the Holy Spirit guided your life? Was he directing you, guiding your path? Now you may say in retrospect, yeah, he was there. I didn't like it, but now I can look back and see that he was. But do you feel him guiding you day by day? Do you, do you seek his guidance? One of the reasons we read the scriptures is to find out what does God want of me? What does God have for me to do? And the way he does it is through the guidance of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. So would you say the spirit guides your life? See, all of these things are so incredibly important and they're promises that Jesus Christ made. And yet, I would say that, I don't know everybody in this room, but I'm gonna guess that this is true of every guy in the room. Our lives tend to exhibit these things, worry and anxiety. We worry a lot. We find things to worry about that don't even exist. It's the what if scenario. Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this doesn't come through? And we're way down the road and we've already decided the outcome and it probably won't ever happen because we are filled with worry and anxiety. We tend to express discontentment with our circumstances, even depression. There are more people on antidepressants today than ever before in the history of the world, including Christians. I'm not against taking medication, guys. That's not my point. But why are we, of all people, so anxious, discontent, and even depressed when we have the hope of the world? Why do we tend to have a sense of helplessness and hopelessness when we read the newspaper, when we check our news feed on our laptop or our phone? Why do we suddenly go into a panic? We can go to church, we can worship. You can come to this Bible study and walk out and then turn on the radio and go into depression. Just like that. Why? Because I don't think we fully understand the reality of the promises that have been given to us through Jesus Christ. Why do we have these feelings of weakness and inadequacy when we face difficulties in our life, marriage difficulties, financial difficulties, health difficulties? Why do we spin into this feeling of, God, what am I gonna do? I don't have any help, I don't, I don't know where to turn. When we have Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, we have everything we need for life and godliness according to the scriptures, and yet we have these feelings, lack of direction, lack of purpose, decreasing confidence, confidence in the future. Where is this all going? How's this gonna turn out? Is, is it gonna work out? Is it all gonna go to hell in a handbasket? Why is this more evidence of our lives than those promises? Guidance, peace, joy, comfort. And again, I don't say this to depress you. I, I just want you to realize that the, the messages in this book are gonna be for you and I. We need to hear, we need to understand what the author is trying to tell them because it applies to us in the 21st century as much as it did to them. 
See, this idea that we have this great salvation can sometimes begin to look like it ain't that great. And you know what's really sad is that there are lost people who live next door to you, maybe even in your family, you work with them, and they look at you and they know you're a Christian because you've either claimed it, and they wonder, what's this thing called salvation done for you? Is the salvation, the great salvation that verse three of chapter two talks about, really all that great? Or is something missing? Did we get short, kind kind of stiffed on this thing? We didn't get everything we needed. Is there something else we need to our salvation? Or did it just not take? You know, it's like you get a shot and it doesn't take, it didn't work. No, it took, the problem's not with the gospel, the problem's not with your salvation, the problem's with you, the problem's with me. Were you never saved to begin with? And I I guarantee this is gonna come up over the next weeks because this book's gonna deal with it. It's gonna talk about drifting away. It's gonna talk about falling away. It's gonna talk about apostasy. And you're gonna begin to wonder, am I really saved? Was I really saved to begin with? Now that's not a bad question to ask, but I don't want you to doubt your salvation. I want you to understand what salvation is. And you may be in this room and not really be truly saved. And if that gets revealed to you, great. But I want you to understand that this salvation, whether you understand it completely, fully believe it truly happened, is real, effective, and powerful. And it's not because you're doing something wrong. In other words, if you're not where you wanna be, if you rate yourself two on a 10 scale, it's not that you're, you've left something out, you missed something, you got stiffed on something, or you're doing something wrong, it's that you don't fully understand the gospel. The gospel did not overpromise. All those promises that Jesus made were not like hyperbole, you know, just over-exaggeration. They're promises made by the Son of God and we can rest in them and we can count on them. So all the things that we need are gonna be found in this book. It's only 13 chapters long, but this book is so jam-packed. One of the challenges I've gotten into as as I decided to, to teach it and then began studying it is that it's only 13 chapters. We've got 12 weeks. That seems like it's, that's doable, right? And then I start studying and I realize, oh, there's so much more in here than I can get into 13 weeks. I should have done 26 weeks. We're not gonna do that. But we are gonna find out that this thing is packed because he's writing to people just like you and I, believers. He's writing to Christians. It just so happens that they're struggling with their faith. Now, again, this is written thousands of years ago, first century, probably before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. These are new Christians. Jesus Christ has not been gone that long and they're already struggling with their faith. They're beginning to doubt their salvation. They're beginning to wonder what's going on. This thing we signed up for called the gospel, the good news, the way, doesn't seem to be turning out quite like we expected. So they're beginning to have doubts. They're even questioning the sacrifice of Jesus. Now they're not, but probably 30 years from the actual death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're already beginning to wonder, did that that really happen? 
Did, did he really die on the cross? Did he really rise again? They probably didn't see it. They weren't witnesses of it, but they're beginning to wonder, did it really happen? And they're beginning to think, maybe there's more. Maybe there's something missing. Maybe we didn't get everything that we need. What's fascinating about that concept is that it permeated the early church. In the, in the first two, three centuries of the early church, almost all of Paul's letters deal with that issue of adding to the gospel. Something's missing. We didn't get enough. There must be more. And he's saying, guys, it's not Jesus plus anything. You didn't miss out. You don't need more. You got everything you needed when you placed your faith in Christ. That's what this author is dealing with. See, these are Christ-following Hellenistic Jews. What does that mean? These are Jews who are living outside of Israel and they're living in Greek-speaking countries. We don't know where these people live. Some speculate that they were living somewhere in Italy because later on in the book, it talks about people who are from Italy who they know. We, we don't know where these people live. All we know is they don't live in Israel. They're Jews who are living outside of Israel and they've grown up in Greek-speaking countries and they speak Greek. That's what Hellenistic means. They're Greek-speaking Jews who have come to faith in Christ. Now that's got all kinds of baggage attached to it, right? You're Jews, you're living outside Jerusalem and outside of Israel and you've come to faith in Christ and you're living among Gentiles and that's gonna conjure up all kinds of images of persecution and you don't fit in, you're the odd man out. And that's gonna be true in this book. See, they're Jews by birth. They were born Jews, not born in Israel, but born outside, but they're still Jews. They're descendants of Abraham living outside the land of promise. And that's gonna create all kinds of problems for these people. They speak Greek, they don't speak Hebrew. What's interesting is that there's all kinds of Old Testament quotes in this book, and we're, we're going to look at them in de detail, and they're all from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is, it basically means the 70, and it's uh, probably written in the second century BC, and it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and it was written by 70 Hebrew elders, translated by them into Greek. Why would they do that? Because so many Jews lived outside of Israel who couldn't read what? Hebrew. So they translated into Greek, it's called the Septuagint, and that's how they read their ancient scriptures. And almost every quote, if not all quotes in this Bible from the Old Testament are from that Greek translation of the Old Testament. Why? Because these people read Greek. And so he's making it applicable to them. They're believers, they're Jews, they're living in Gentile countries, they speak a different language than Hebrew, and they are under persecution. Why? Well, A, because they're Christians. Christians are a minority at this point in time. Again, this is first century AD. Christians are in the minority. These people are in a sub-minority because they're Christian Jews who speak Greek and not Hebrew, which means many of their Hebrew-speaking friends don't want anything to do with them. So like they are like low person on the totem pole and they are under persecution because of what they've done. They've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You and I face persecution. 
Uh, I don't know how great your persecution may be, but there may be people you work with who know you're a Christian and they look down on you because of your faith. But I have never faced the kind of persecution that we see in this book. I don't, I don't have anybody who threatens me, my job. I, have, I, I may have people who have made fun of me over the years when I was in advertising. You know, people look down on me because of my faith and they would make jokes about it, but I didn't get persecuted. These people did. And it was beginning to make them wonder what was the good news part of the good news? Why, what's good about this? I placed my faith in Jesus Christ and now not only am I a Greek-speaking Jew living among Gentiles who don't happen to like Jews, but I'm not even liked by my fellow Jews because now I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. What, what's the good news part of the good news? Because I don't seem to see it. See, everything hasn't turned out the way they expected. It, it's not good news to them. It, it's painful. It's not fun. It's something that makes them question, why did I do what I did? And what are the promises? And when do they start coming? And what's this whole thing about? Where is Jesus now? I don't see Jesus walking around. I don't see Jesus making a difference in my life. Where has he gone and what's he up to? And they begin to doubt that he is all they need. And whether you want to admit it or not, I guarantee every guy in this room has those doubts at times where, Lord, are you enough? Did you, did you really accomplish what you said you accomplished? And was it enough to take care of all of my needs right here and now? I know you've taken care of my future. I know that you're going to return one day. I know that I got a place reserved for me in your heavenly kingdom. But what about now? See, that's what these people are wrestling with is the here and now. They're not obsessed with the hereafter. They're wondering about right now. And that's what you and I are facing is that we live now. Hey, heaven's a great deal, but it ain't here yet. I, I need to worry about today. How am I going to pay my bills? How, how am I going to handle my marriage that may not be going that well? My kids who are growing up in a very difficult environment. Where is Jesus in all of this? Listen to this quote. The audience appears to be primarily Jewish Christians who grew up in Judaism, but have believed in Jesus. They have embraced him as Messiah, yet they've hit a snag. For whatever reason, perhaps the pressure, persecution, and opposition, they are thinking about what? Going back to Judaism. Now you may think, well, that's not bad. Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. What's wrong with going back to Judaism? Well, they're considering leaving this newfound faith and going back to the old ways. Animal sacrifices, worship at the temple, the old paths, if you will, that Jews had trusted in for generations. In other words, these people are starting to doubt whether this Jesus thing is all that it first promised to be. Is Jesus enough? Well, maybe I need to go back to Judaism. Maybe I, maybe I need to go back to the synagogue. I need to go back to the law. I need to go back to offering animal sacrifices. I need to do these things because this thing doesn't seem to be working back. And they're reverting back to what they formerly knew. It's not unlike when we studied Exodus that when the people got out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and things don't seem to be going the way they want them to go, I was, I was reading through uh, Numbers this morning, and it's a story where the Israelites uh, are disgruntled yet again, and they want to go where? Back to Egypt. They, they don't like this leadership of Moses. They don't like the way things are going, and so they want to go back. This is what's happening in this book. These people are looking backwards rather than forwards, and they want to exchange the good news for the old ways. You know, I was better off before as a Jew than I am now as a Jewish Christian. 
I, I had less persecution. I was more accepted. I knew what was expected of me. And so they want to take the new covenant that Jesus came to bring. And we're going to get into that in great detail over the next weeks. They want to go back to the old covenant, the covenant between God and Moses. They want to go back to what's known and comfortable. The gospel gets exchanged for what? The law. And that's going to come up over and over again in this book. Doing things according to the law rather than what Jesus Christ has already done. Exchanging faith for works. See, this is alive and well today. You probably at times feel like there's something I need to be doing to be truly saved. Or if your life doesn't go well or things don't turn out quite the way you expect, you think, okay, I'm, I need to be doing something more. There's something missing that I need to do. That's basically going back to the law rather than Jesus Christ has done it all. He's taken care of it. So they want to exchange grace for merit, earning. I need to do something so that God will do for me what I want him to do. So what we want to do is just real, real briefly look at chapter two. We're going to kind of start in this chapter because it sets up everything that's said in chapter one. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We got to start listening to everything that we've heard. What's he talking about? The gospel, the good news. Everything that they have been taught through the apostles, everything that Jesus said, all those promises, everything that Jesus taught, we need to start listening to. Otherwise, we're going to drift away. What does that mean? See, this is where you, you might start to squirm and go, have I drifted away? Have I, have I, am I guilty of this? It literally means to drift away, okay? But it also means to glide past. It, it's, a, it's a picture, it's a word picture that they would have gotten because they understood the meaning of it. It's a little bit less clear to us. What does it mean to drift away? And you'll notice if you look at various translations of the Bible, it gets translated a a variety of ways, but it's really a picture, a word picture. Listen to this. The vivid warning here uses nautical language, sailing language, suggesting the image of a ship whose anchor has broken loose from the ocean floor and is dangerously, dangerously drifting away. Something that should be there is no longer there. The anchor has broken off and the ship no longer has stability and it's at the mercy of the wind and the waves. That's the picture. It no longer has security It's no longer relying on something that it can really rely on. And it's at the mercy of the circumstances around it. That's the picture. Dangerously drifting away. This theme is going to be throughout the book. And what I need you to understand, he's calling for these people not to drift away. Now they're believers. He's writing to Christians. So why would he say this? Because he wants them to endure. He wants them to have endurance. He wants them to persevere no matter what comes their way. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't run. Don't bail. Be steadfast. These words are going to be all throughout the book. Consistently believe. Believe what? The promises of Jesus. The truth of the gospel. Don't doubt just because things don't seem to be going the way you want them to go. Continue to believe and be faithful. And We need this, right? You and I need this. And we struggle with this. I struggle with this. Because the world tempts me to give in, give up, throw in the towel, disbelieve. He's not there. He doesn't really care about you. He's not listening to you. 
And yet the call to these people and the call to you is me, to me is to be faithful. See, later on he says, be careful then brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it's still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. See, that, that's the call. That's the call to them. That's the call to you and I, that we have to believe what we first believe. We have to continue. We have to endure. We have to persevere. These people were losing that foundation. Why? Because the winds were blowing. The persecution was coming. Things weren't turning out quite what, like they wanted to. And so they're losing faith in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. They're, they're taking their eyes off the prize They're not losing their salvation. And this is really important for us to understand. This is not a threat of losing your salvation. We as a church don't believe that can ever happen. You cannot lose your salvation if you're truly saved. Okay, that's the key. They had drifted. If they drifted, well, what does that mean? It's really saying you never were anchored to begin with. So you can be in this room thinking you're a believer, but you never really placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I could sit down and talk to you and say, are you a believer? Yes. How do you know? Well, I grew up in the church. Oh, okay. Tell me more about that. Well, my parents were, you know, they they went to church. We always went to church. I've always known about Jesus. I, I, I was catechized. I was dipped. I was dunked. I was sprinkled. I was immersed. I was whatever you were. But that doesn't mean you're a Christian. That means you're churched. Okay, there's a huge difference. And so when he's talking about drifting away, he's, he's talking about people who never were anchored in the first place. They've heard the gospel. They've heard the truth. It's resonated in their mind, but it's never made it to their heart. And so when the first difficulties come, they drift away because they have no anchor. They've never been anchored. So he's not telling you, hey, Christian, you could lose your salvation. And some of you fear that. The real question is, are you really saved? That's what you need to wrestle with. Not that you could lose your salvation, but did you ever get anchored in the first place? That's the question we have to answer. Chapter six, therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. See what he's saying? You're not gonna drift away if you're anchored. You'll drift away if you're not anchored. If you don't have a firm foundation in the gospel and what Jesus Christ did for you, you will drift away. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. So nowhere in this book is he gonna teach that you lose your salvation. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance. Inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Listen to this. If you've ever wrestled with your salvation, the assurance of your salvation, listen to what Peter says. Your Salvation is kept in heaven for you by who? God Almighty. It's not up to you to stay saved. If you are saved, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are held by the hands of God Almighty. 
kept in heaven for you, pure, undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. See, he's really writing to two groups of people. Jews who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ and who are anchored and Jews who think they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ and who are not anchored. And guess what? Christ Chapel has both people every Sunday. People who are saved and people who think they're saved. People who are anchored and people who are not anchored. And that's why this book is so relevant. Their faith is under siege. But he's saying, guys, you have a firm anchor. Don't panic, don't worry. If you're not anchored, then you need to worry. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you do need to panic a little bit. See, they have a faulty concept of who Jesus is and what he's done. See, they believe he's just a man. They believe he's a created being. They believe he's not even a prophet. They're beginning to have doubts about who Jesus is. They think he's inferior to angels. Now, why would they think all these things? Because that's what they're being taught by their Hebrew friends who are not believers. They're saying, why, why did you put your faith in this guy called Jesus? He was just a man. Not only that, he died. And, and he's not even a true prophet. And not only that, he's not as powerful as an angel. You may not know this, but the Jews worshiped angels, especially in this time period, because they believed that angels were divine, but beyond just angelic beings, they actually were godlike. And so these Jewish Christians are beginning to get all this false information. And that's what chapter one is all about. That's what he's saying. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. See, what's, we're not going to go through this chapter this morning because all I want to concentrate on is if you go back and you read this chapter, what he's saying is that Jesus Christ is superior, better than, greater than anything else you can come up with. Anything, any person, angel, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ is superior. He's greater. He trumps everything. And in these opening verses, he drives that home. He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to angels. He's greater. He's better. Don't get sidetracked. Don't think there's something missing or something better than Jesus. Why? Because he's the son of God. And what he's going to do in these verses is hammer home that point. Verse two, he speaks as the son of God. Verse two, he's the heir of all things. He created the world. He is the creator God. This is Jesus, the one they're about to turn their back on. He makes God's glory visible. He is the the manifestation of God. He is God in the flesh. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. When you look at Jesus, you see God. You don't have to look at creation. You don't have to look at anything else. You can see God in Jesus. He sustains the universe. See, when you begin to panic and wonder, is God in control? You can look at this and, and realize that Jesus Christ holds the universe together, even though it may look like it's out of control. That's Jesus. He sits at the right hand of God in a position of authority and power. He's the father's only son. He's worshiped by angels. He's greater than angels. They bow before him. He reigns eternally. He's been anointed by God. The heavens are his handiwork. All through chapter one, that's what he's driving home. Jesus Christ is superior. He's eternal. And 
the bottom line issue is he's victorious. And if he's victorious, guess what? So are you. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away. See, guys, I don't want you to doubt your salvation. I want you to rest in what Jesus Christ has done for you. So many rest contented with the thought that their sins are pardoned and that they are in the path of life. However, they know nothing of personal attachment to Christ as their leader or of a faith that lives in the invisible and walks with God. Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus Christ is all-powerful. Jesus Christ knows what he's doing, and Jesus Christ has a plan for your life. So here's your questions for this morning. What are some ways in which we undervalue that great salvation? How do you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, undervalue what he's done for us? How does that show up in your life every day? Secondly, why should the list of Christ's superior attributes we just looked at keep us from drifting away and losing faith, coming unanchored, forgetting all that he's done? Why do we need to go back to that list? If, those lists, if that list is true of him, why should it strengthen our faith? Finally, has your salvation resulted in peace, comfort, direction, and power? If so, how? How does that show up? And if not, why? Father, I thank you for these guys. I thank you for their willingness to be here and to dig into this incredible book. And I I pray that you would show us who Jesus Christ is right here, right now. I rejoice in the fact that he's my savior, but I want him to be even more than that. I want him to be my friend, my guide, my director, my confidence that I would understand that he is still active. He intercedes on my behalf. He prays for me. He speaks to the Father for me every single day. Would you drive that home over these next weeks? And I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.